This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Ask the Expert with Steph. I'm your host, Steph Storer, and today I'm joined by the wonderful and talented author historian Catherine Warner to discuss not necessarily a Tudor figure today, but a rather important and interesting figure in British royal history nonetheless. And that man is Edward II. Now, Edward II, son of Edward I, or Longshanks, does not have a great reputation. So I'm really excited to be here with you, Catherine, to find out more of the history, dispel some of the rumors, and get to know Edward a little bit better. Welcome. Yeah, hello, Steph. Thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. I'm really excited to have the opportunity. Yeah, we're so excited to chat about it. So I think since a lot of our listeners are mostly familiar with Tudor history, mm-hmm. let's start off with a little bit of background. Can you give us a quick biography of Edward II before we go ahead and jump into the listener questions? Certainly, yes, of course. So Edward II was the King of England from 1307 to 1327, and he was the fourth son of Edward I, but the eldest one who survived into childhood, so succeeded his father as King in 1307. Uh, Via his mother, Eleanor of Castile, he was partly Spanish, and his grandfather, in fact, was San Fernando, um, a.k.a. King Fernando III of Castile and Leon. Um, And Edward was the first English king who was forced to abdicate his throne in 1327, So, and his reign was uh, exceedingly turbulent and dramatic. So I'll hope I'll be able to give you an introduction to him and to his reign today. This brief interruption is brought to you by, well, me. Do you love Tudor's Dynasty? Consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of amazing things that the everyday listener does not. Find out more by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty, and click Become a Patron for details. All right, back to the show. The first thing that our listeners really wanted to talk about was his relationship to his parents. Mm-hmm. We've read before that Edward I and his wife, Eleanor of Castile, were very much in love mm-hmm. um, and had a great relationship together. Mm-hmm. So what was his childhood like and what did he grow up kind of around and, and how was his relationship with his parents? So Edward was the at least the 14th and possibly even the 15th or 16th child of Edward I and Eleanor of Castile. So both of them were in, were in their 40s when he was born uh, on the 25th of April, 1284. And when Edward was only two years old, his parents left England for a while and went to spend uh, quite a long sojourn in the Duchy of Aquitaine in southwest France, which, of course, was also controlled and ruled by the kings of England in this period. And they didn't return to England until August 1289, when Edward was was five years old. And only 15 months later, Queen Eleanor died um, at the young age of probably 48 or 49. So it's hard to say, or almost basically impossible to say, what kind of relationship Edward had with his mother, because he would only have spent a very, very short period of, of his childhood with her. Um, what is interesting, perhaps, is that although Queen Eleanor was, was Spanish, she was Eleanor of Castile, her mother was French, and she inherited a county in northern France from her mother, the county of Pontier, which passed to Edward II on her death in 1290. Um, Edward was... Uh, 15 years old in 1299 when he acquired a stepmother, uh, Marguerite of France. That was Edward I's second wife. So we uh, we know more about his relationship with his stepmother than we do with his, his biological mother. They seem to have been on pretty close terms, at least in his father's lifetime. Um, so Edward was 23 when he succeeded his father as King of England in July 1307. Edward I was 68 by that point. Uh, and it does seem that at least in the last years of Edward I's life, that the, the two men had a rather difficult relationship. And it's perhaps true that Edward I realised that his son didn't exactly have the kind of abilities and the kind of personality needed to be a strong uh, king of England and a strong war leader, as, as was necessary. So in the last couple of years of Edward I's life, the, the two men had, had really appalling rows. Uh, on one occasion, according to, to one chronicler, uh, Edward I actually kind of like grabbed his son by the hair and like, you know, threw him to the ground so that they had some quite violent rows. 
Um, until that point, um, Edward's, Edward, Edward II's childhood appears to have been fairly conventional. Um, so he had his own household from a very young age as, as the heir to the throne, as was necessary. Um, he travelled around with his own household independently from the court. So in the early years of his life, um, he probably didn't see his father all, all that often. Um, beginning in about 1300, when he was six, 16, he started to take a more active role uh, in his father's uh, court, and especially in the, in the older king's uh, military career. One of the biggest... I don't know if we want to say rumors or bits of information that we hear about Edward II was about his homosexuality. Mm -hmm. So now once his father had passed, obviously he becomes king. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of our listeners was wondering about the coronation because it is said that at his coronation, or I should say at the, you know, reception or feast after the coronation, Edward was actually sat beside one of his favorites rather than his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was, he was proud to flaunt that, that he had these friends mm. as we would call them. Um, is there any truth to that in, in the coronation specifically, we'll definitely get more into the relationships a little bit later, but as far as just his coronation, when he first becomes King, um, is that more, is that what the scene looked like there? Okay, so this uh, male favourite was Piers Gaveston, who we'll we'll, we'll talk about uh, a bit later, I hope, because that's a really interesting topic. Um, Yes, don't you worry about that. (laughs) We'll come back to that. So Edward uh, married Isabella of France uh, in late January 1308, and they were jointly crowned King and Queen of England uh, at Westminster Abbey exactly a month later, on the 25th of February 1308. So the thing we have to remember at this point is, well, firstly, Edward was 23, going on 24, and Isabella was only 12 and secondly that he had of course had to marry her for political reasons basically their respective fathers Edward I of England and Philip IV of of France had been uh, at war against each other for the entire second half of the 1290s so Edward and Isabella's marriage was arranged at the end of the 1290s to basically cement the peace treaty between England and France So before they married, Edward had never set eyes on Isabella before, and she was 12 years old. She was basically, you know, pubescent, probably not even pubescent. And he was already involved in this kind of, some kind of intense relationship with Piers Gaveston. Uh, Gaveston played a fairly important role in Edward and and Isabella's coronation. And we are told by one chronicler that uh, Edward talked to Gaveston more at the coronation banquet than he did to Isabella. So we don't know specifically that Edward was, let's say, flirting with Gaveston or was ignoring Isabella while he was doing this, or even that they necessarily weren't sitting next to each other. We're just told that he he talked to Gaveston more than he talked to his wife. If we, I mean, I know, and this is rude. I mean, it was rude and discourteous to the French. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And certainly to Isabella herself, who had done nothing wrong, who had only arrived in England several weeks earlier. And, and was Edward's wife and queen, despite her you know, extreme use. But I've, if I just try to look at it a bit more from Edward's perspective, perhaps, you know, here he was, a, a man who was an adult, who is uh, sitting next to this 12-year-old girl he'd never met before, who was basically only half his age. And then maybe sitting on his other side was a man he'd known for half his life, who was a very good and very dear friend of his. So, you know, perhaps it's not the worst thing that anyone's ever done to talk to a friend of yours more than to talk to a 12-year-old girl you've only just met. When you put it that way, it makes so much more sense. <laughs> the way that, that things are written um, and the way that we view them based on how we see them written yeah. is so different than, you know, somebody who's kind of on his side, I think. So let's move into the kind of ruler that he was. Mm. There are some questions about how he uh, how he reigned. So do you feel that he would have liked to have had a constitutional monarchy at this time? Do you feel that he was an egalitarian? What kind of ruler do you think that he was? Well, one very interesting aspect of Edward II's character and personality was you know, how very fond he was of what we might call his common subjects or his low-born subjects. Subjects And a lot of the uh, contemporary chroniclers, they, they commented on this, that he much preferred the company of, let's say, carters or, or fishermen 
or you know people who worked with their hands he preferred to spend time with them rather than with his own earls and barons and i think to us that's perhaps a rather attractive aspect of, of his personality that we in the 21st century might approve of, of a king who had the common touch but to Edward's contemporaries, this was actually quite shocking because this was seen, seemed to go against the will of God because God had ordained the different ranks and, and strata of society. And, and so and, and Edward was you know, doing something really badly wrong by, by hanging out with, with these like low-born people. So I've done a lot of work on, on Edward's accounts. I've looked at them in the National Archives and, and, and can actually confirm that he did spend an awful lot of time... Like, you know, chatting to, to fishermen, for example, or in the in the uh, autumn of 1315, he went on on a swimming holiday near Cambridge with what chronicler calls a great company of common people, and he did this like you know really really regularly. Um, he invited them even into his private rooms and you know, chatted to them, gave them generous gifts, went drinking with them. So as, as I say to us, this this makes him seem like a like a really kind of you know, friendly, nice, interesting person, but his contemporaries were were horrified by it. Um, but when it comes to whether he was actually an egalitarian or not, I think that's you know, perhaps a slightly different question because one of the contradictions in Edward's personality is that he behaved like that. He, he went out and, and, and went for a drink with fishermen or he would go and thatch a roof. He would go into the park at one of his castles and, and dig ditches, for example. He was happy to do these things. But then he would also, on other occasions, very much stand on his rights as a king uh, and as God's anointed on earth. So, no, I, I can't see that he would have uh, approved of a constitutional monarchy if he'd had any kind of conception of it, um, because he, yeah, he was very much a royal autocrat in, in some ways. Uh, although I think from our perspective, we could perhaps see that he would have been a lot happier in a constitutional monarchy because he did not in any way have the kind of talents or abilities that, that, were, need, that were needed in, in, a, in a medieval king and war leader. And it made it his um, his position as the King of England made him very unhappy, and more importantly, it also made his subjects very unhappy. And for you know, for nine, the nineteen and a half years of his reign, it was basically just you know, England just lurched from one disaster to another. So I think, from our perspective, yes, uh, a constitutional monarchy would have been great for Edward II, but I can't really see him agreeing on that point, unfortunately. I'd like to move a little bit now into his personal life. I know that this is. This is definitely the feature of today's conversation, I think. So again, he had different favorites. He had some, quote, friends that were around a lot. Do you think that him and his wife, Isabella, were able to ever have any kind of a good relationship? It's clear that they weren't necessarily in love with one another, but was there ever a point where they were cordial or even tolerated each other? Or do you think that his his favorites just always got in the way? So I, I suppose we, it's reasonable to say that Edward and Isabella's marriage did not really get off uh, on a particularly good foot because she was 12 and she wasn't really in any position to be his wife in anything more than the name only. Um, so which I mean, I think you know we can't blame either of them for that. That was just the, you know the way it was. They had no choice to marry each other. They they basically just had to. Um, but it seems to me that after those awkward few months, and especially as the months and years passed, and Isabella got older and became more mature, and became more able to be Edward's real partner, in, you know, in in more than name only. Um, it seems to me that their relationship actually became a pretty affectionate one. Um, which I think would, would surprise a lot of people because a lot of very silly stories have been invented over the over the years and centuries about Edward and Isabella. So one story that's often told about them is that Edward gave the wedding gifts that had been given to Isabella to his favourite or lover, Piers Gaveston. This is complete nonsense. This was invented in the 19th century. Um, it never happened. Another story that has been invented about them was that in 1324, Edward took custody of their children away from Isabella, you know, deliberately being cruel to her. That was invented in the 1970s, and it's based on absolutely no evidence whatsoever. 
Um, another story has it the Deadwood abandoned Isabella when she was pregnant with their first child in 1312 to take Gaveston to safety instead. Again, that was the misunderstanding of one chronicler who was writing some decades later uh, and mistook a time when Isabella was in, uh, in the far north of England in 1312 with a later occasion when, when she was there uh, again in 10 years later and thought that she'd been abandoned. But I mean, her own itinerary proves that she wasn't abandoned by the king. So there's all this nonsense, unfortunately, about them that's been invented over the centuries, which obscures the true picture, um, which I think is that over the years they spent an awful lot of time together. So uh, Isabella's itinerary doesn't always exist. We can't always tell where she was. But when we do know, she, she was with Edward uh, most of the time. Uh, he gave her a very large household, the largest that any Queen of England had ever had up to that point of nearly 200 people. He gave her a very generous income. Um, they had several children together. Um, in 1313, they went on quite a long visit to Isabella's homelands, to France. They spent two months in and around Paris. And one, chron one uh, Parisian chronicler who, who was an eyewitness actually tells us how much they were, they were enjoying each other's company at that point. Uh, Edward actually overslept and missed a, a meeting with his uh, father-in-law, Philip IV, because he and Isabella had actually been making love during the night. Uh, several weeks later, they were staying in a pavilion uh, in Pontoise, uh, a fire broke out one night and the, the chronicler comments that Edward scooped up Isabella in his arms, even though they were completely naked, uh, and rushed outside with her and actually saved her life from the fire. And the chronicler comments that Edward did that because he loved his wife. Um, so we get uh, a, a really nice and very different view of, of their marriage and their relationship there from, from an actual eyewitness who, who saw them in, in 1313. Um, so whether Ed, Edward's relationships with, with the men in his life actually affected Isabella or how it affected her is really an unanswerable question, unfortunately. Um, some contemporaries assumed that she was hostile to Piers Gaveston, but that's just an, an assumption, really. She might have been. Equally, she might not have been. We, we don't actually know that. Um, in the middle years of Edward's reign, he had relationships with two young knights called Roger Damery and Hugh Audley. And in fact, there's evidence that Isabella was, at, was on good terms with them. So there's a list of some very expensive gifts that she gave to Roger Damery, for example. So where it all started to go badly wrong was in, in the early 1320s with Edward's last and most powerful favourite, uh, Hugh Dispenser the Younger. And it's very, very clear to me that Isabella loathed Hugh Dispenser. She was frightened of him and she genuinely thought that he might hurt her physically. And from what I know about Hugh, that was probably, or it might even have been a, a well-founded fear. He was, in fact, a very scary person who was prone to threatening people with, with violence or threat, uh, and imprison them and, and, and so on. So it was really only um, with Hugh Dispenser the Younger that we see Isabella's intense animosity towards one of the men who was her husband's favourite or, or perhaps lover. And again, chroniclers who were writing some years or decades later, they knew this and, and they knew that the royal marriage had gone very badly wrong in the 1320s. And I think that the, they, they then kind of then kind of move that backwards to Piers Gaveston, you know, if you see what I mean. And she assumed and tended to assume that Isabella had always been hostile to her husband's favourites, when in fact it was just really Hugh Dispenser and Dispenser's own personality, which really alienated Isabella. I think not necessarily the fact that her husband perhaps had male lovers. We have no way of knowing how she felt about that. You know, she might have been disgusted by it. It might not have bothered her in the slightest. And, you know, we, we, we really don't know because, unfortunately, in, in the 14th century, we don't have the kind of evidence uh, for people's personal feelings uh, or their relationships. So we can, we can only speculate. Which is rather unfortunate, but but certainly it is, and that yeah. that seems to always come up. Um, people always ask, "How did they feel about this?" and "How did they feel about yeah. that?" And I, we always wish that one of the experts can say, "Well, <laughs> I have their diary here, and they told us that they felt very strongly about this." Thing. Yeah. Uh, speaking of those nonsense stories, one of the other things I wanted to ask you is whether or not he really banned women from court. Um, there was a source that said that he had banned every woman besides Isabella and her ladies from the court because he just wanted 
to be surrounded by men. And that sounds a little outrageous, but I'd like to hear your take. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually completely baffled by, by, by that because I have lit in, in only what, something like 17 and a half years I've been researching Edward II and he's right. I have never once heard that story and it is absolutely emphatically not true. And in fact, he invited women to his coronation, which for possibly might have been the first time uh, in the Middle Ages. So in fact, quite the contrary. And during the visit to Paris in 1313 that I was, I was just speaking about, the chronicler who, who, uh, who was an eyewitness and tells us about their visit actually comments that on, on, on one occasion, uh, Edward and Isabella were watching a, a parade uh, through the streets of Paris from a tower and they were surrounded by ladies and damsels. So I would think quite the contrary, that actually Edward did enjoy the company of women. Uh, he was close to, to some women like uh, Lady Hastings, for example, was a good friend of his. He was very close to several of his nieces and to his sisters. So no, it is absolutely not true that he banished women from court. Perfect. Thank you for clearing that up. <laughs> so now let's talk a little bit about Piers Gaveston. You mentioned that this was most likely his lover, correct? It was obviously a favorite, a close friend. Why do you think that he felt so comfortable being so open about how he felt about Piers? So Piers Gaveston was a young nobleman who came from Gascony in the far southwest of France. Um, so in the, in the Middle Ages, this part of France was ruled by the kings of England. So although Gaveston wasn't English, he wasn't French either by the standards of the time. He was a subject of the English crown. Um, he came to England with his father in about 1297, and within a year or two, Edward I had placed him in his son's household uh, as, as his companion and possibly also as a kind of role model because Gaveston was slightly older, not much older, but several years older. So Edward met Gaveston when he was probably, you know, 14 or 15, and according to a chronicler, fell deeply in love with him when he met him. Uh, basically, all 14th century chroniclers who wrote about Edward II commented on the great love that Edward had for Piers Gaveston. Although some of us do do tell, some of them do tell us that he loved him as, as a brother, as, as an adopted brother, rather than as his lover. So whether that's actually true, or whether that was just how Edward. Um, had to present his attachment to Gaveston, you know, living in the homophobic and heteronormative society that he did. He obviously couldn't present Gaveston as, hello, this is my boyfriend. Um, so we don't know for sure that they were lovers, but it seems to me quite likely, um, given how incredibly close Edward was to Gaveston, how he acted. He brought Gaveston back from exile on no fewer than three occasions. Uh, Gaveston was after Gaveston was killed in 1312. Edward remembered him regularly for for the remaining 14 and a half years of his reign. You know he was always sending people to pray for Gaveston's soul. You know at his resting place and you know, and, and things like that. And it's it's very interesting, isn't it, about exactly why Edward thought he he was so he could be so open about the fact that he loved men. It wasn't just Gaveston. Later it was Roger Damery and Hugh Audley, and then later Hugh Despenser. And and I don't know why he, he felt like that, because um, he was also a very pious and, and devout Christian. Uh, so that, again, we have this kind of contradiction in Edward's personality, that he was doing something that was actually kind of forbidden by the church. And yet he's now really open about the way, about the fact that, that he loved men and that women were important in, in his life. And, and again, it goes back to the fact that we just don't have this, this kind of evidence in the 14th century, unfortunately, because I would absolutely love to know what Edward was thinking about that. It would be fascinating. Well, speaking about openly having a potential lover, um, one question that we got from a listener was that Isabella France, his, his wife, um, left for a meeting with her brother, Charles, in France. And she actually decided not to come back for two-ish years, if I'm correct. Um, so she didn't come back for two years. And when she did come back, she brought with her her new lover, friend, um, Roger Mortimer. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Do you think that that was kind of a revenge thing um, with, you know, to get back at her husband for having all these mm. 
That, that's a fascinating question, Steph, yes. Um, so what happened was that in the summer of 1324, Edward II went to war against his brother-in-law, uh, Charles IV of France. And a few months later, in March 1325, uh, everybody, including the Pope, decided it would be a great idea if Queen Isabella could travel to France and negotiate a peace settlement. You know, being the wife of the King of England and the sister of the King of France, she was perfectly placed to do so. Uh, if, so she spent a few months in France. She did, in fact, uh, negotiate a peace settlement, so, so that was fine. Um, but then it seems that she was very angry with Hugh Dispenser, who, uh, her husband's Chamberlain and his last great and really powerful favourite, who by that point had, was dominating Edward so much that he was basically in control of the entire English government and also of foreign policy. And it seems also that Dispenser was very envious of Isabella and disliked her and had done everything he could. Um, to manipulate Edward into, into treating his loyal and supportive and loving wife of the last few years as though she was a French enemy alien. And, and Edward did treat Isabella very badly between 1322 and 1324, it has to be said. I mean, you know, he confiscated all her lands, for example. He gave her an income instead. But that was a, it was an unkind thing to do. And I can completely understand why Isabella was, she was very unhappy and she was very angry about this. And being the daughter of the King of France, she wasn't the kind of woman who was going to take this kind of humiliation. So she uh, used her stay in France uh, at her brother's court in Paris to try to uh, issue an, an ultimatum to Edward that either you send Dispenser away from you or I will not return to you. Uh, Edward, unfortunately for Isabella, refused this ultimatum, which left her with, with little choice but to stay in France and ally with some of Edward's baronial enemies who had fled there over the previous years uh, after a failed rebellion against Edward and Hugh Dispenser in the early 1320s. So chief among them was the Baron Roger Mortimer, who was Lord of Wigmore in Herefordshire. He was the highest ranking of Edward's baronial en uh, enemies who had uh, sought uh, refuge on, on the continent. And... So Isabella made an alliance with Mortimer and with some of his uh, English allies there, like, for example, William Trussell, Thomas Russell and John Maltravers. So there were a few Englishmen on the continent who Isabella allied herself with, and they decided to try to bring down Hugh Spencer, certainly. At some point, they also decided to invade England and perhaps try to bring down Edward II as, as well. But we don't know when actually that, that was decided. The, the first point was that they were all allied against Hugh Dispenser. And again, a lot of stories have been told about, about Isabella and, and Mortimer. And unfortunately, the, um, this, this tale has become, you know, basically hopelessly over-romanticised to, to a degree that's actually quite absurd. So we don't know for sure that they be became lovers in 1326. It's certainly possible, but we don't know that. We don't know that Isabella fell in love with Roger Mortimer. We just know that at this point, he was an experienced warrior and an English baron who was going to be very useful to her in bringing down her husband's detested favourite. Um, it's certainly possible that, that later on that they did become lovers. Um, but I would, my view is that in 1326 that they just formed a political alliance. Mortimer was in exile on the continent and couldn't go home while Hugh Dispenser was alive. Isabella, in effect, was also in exile on the continent, having offered Edward II an ultimatum, which he'd refused. So she also couldn't go home until Hugh Dispenser was probably dead. Um, so I just I, I think at first this was a political alliance and not some kind of great love affair. Moving along uh, out of his personal life for just a few questions, we'll come back to it again. Can you tell us a little bit about the Battle of Bannockburn? I don't want to say it wrong. Yes, Bannockburn. 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 Okay, can you tell us a little bit about that battle? Yeah, so what happened was that uh, in the 14th century, uh, the kings of England basically decided that they were the rightful overlords of Scotland. So they didn't actually claim the Scottish throne. They didn't want to be kings of Scotland, but they thought that the kings of Scotland should hold their kingdom from the kings of England rather than, than from God. 
And in 1306, at the end of Edward I's life, uh, a no young nobleman called Robert Bruce had like emerged victorious from the all the battles that were going on in Scotland at the time and, ha and had had himself crowned King of Scotland to the great disgruntlement of Edward I, who died in uh, the following year uh, on his way to a military campaign to, to try to bring down Robert Bruce. Uh, so Edward II's accession was 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 great for Robert Bruce um, because Edward I was a great warrior, a great general, a great, a great war leader. Edward II wasn't in any way whatsoever. So he spent the next few years consolidating his position, gaining allies, uh, basically trying to throw uh, the English out of his kingdom. A lot of the castles, uh, certainly in the south of Scotland, were, were held by by the English. Uh, in 1313, 1313, uh, his brother, who was also called Edward, Edward Bruce, um, began besieging Stirling Castle, which was still in the hands of, of an English garrison and was one of the most vital and, and important castles in, in Scotland. Um, so the garrison sent out an, an SOS to Edward II and said, please come and relieve us. So a few months later, Edward II marched north to Stirling Castle uh, with the greatest army that had ever been assembled in England by that point. Uh, also included Welsh archers, Irish soldiers, knights and noblemen from all over Europe, all of them desperate to take part in what they assumed would be the English king's great victory uh, over the the essentially what they thought of as the rebel king of Scotland. Uh, and the Battle of Bannockburn was fought close to Stirling Castle uh, in June 1314. And unfortunately, it all went horribly wrong for Edward II within a fairly short time. Um, his cavalry made no headway against uh, Robert Bruce's uh, footmen and, and pikemen. And it was basically uh, probably the most humiliating military defeat for Edward for England ever in history. Still remembered with with great gratitude and glee in in Scotland over seven hundred years later. But a great embarrassment for Edward II, who had to flee from the battlefield to avoid being captured, um, because otherwise uh, he would have been taken for a king's ransom or he might have been killed. So he had to gallop hard for the coast and, and try to escape back to England, uh, which he did. But this also, unfortunately, uh, drastically weakened his political situation at home and has given him the yeah the not undeserved reputation of being one of England's most disastrous kings ever in history, unfortunately. So after this terrible, embarrassing battle... Can you give us a little bit of insight into how Thomas of Lancaster kind of stepped in? Yeah, sure. And and how how he played a role in the rest of uh, Edward's rule. Yeah, so Thomas of Lancaster was Edward II's cousin. They were both grandsons of Henry III. Uh, the King of England, who died in 1272. Thomas of Lancaster's father, Edmund, was the younger brother of King Edward I. So at the beginning of Edward II's reign, Thomas of Lancaster appears to have been a, a close friend and ally of, of, of his cousin, the King, but something went badly wrong between the two cousins. They quarrelled badly. And in about 1309-1310, Thomas began to move into a position of... Uh, opposition and indeed great hostility to his cousin, the king. And in 1314, he didn't go to Scotland to fight uh, alongside Edward II at the Battle of Bannockburn. He stayed at home, uh, supposedly raised an army to deal with Edward in case Edward came back victorious and decided to punish Thomas because he'd been the man who was chiefly responsible for putting Piers Gaveston to death. Um, instead, Edward's position was so weak that Thomas basically turned him into a puppet king for the next couple of years, um, was kind of more or less Edward's co-ruler during this period. Um, but the problem was that the two cousins hated each other so much that they couldn't really work together. And unfortunately for, for the English people at this time, one of the greatest natural disasters of the, mid, of the English Middle Ages took uh, took place in the early 30, in the middle of the 1310s, of uh, the Great Famine, um, a period when the crops and harvest failed in England two years in a row, absolutely catastrophically, and up to 10% of the population died of starvation and malnutrition. And unfortunately for the English people, just at exactly at the time when, when they needed strong leadership, they didn't get any leadership at all because Edward II and his cousin Thomas of Lancaster uh, were too busy quarrelling with each other and trying to thwart each other. 
Um, eventually, in 1322, Edward managed to move to manoeuvre Thomas of Lancaster into a position where he committed treason. Uh, there was a battle in Yorkshire in March 1322, which uh, Thomas lost. And just a few days after the battle, he was actually beheaded. So Edward, in fact, the, probably the only battle he won in his entire life, actually won that struggle against his own cousin. How did the people of England at the time feel about Thomas of Lancaster? Um, I suppose because he he was very royal on both sides of his family. He was also royal on his French mother's side. She was a niece of Louis IX of France. He was the richest nobleman in England by far. He held, he held five earldoms. He controlled a, a really massive part of England, actually. During his, his lifetime, he doesn't appear to have been particularly popular, but his execution in 1322 shocked the, the nation profoundly, as, as far as I can tell. And he was treated as though he was, in fact, a, a saint. People went to the site of his execution in Yorkshire and, and prayed there. They went to uh, St. Paul's Cathedral in London and, and, and prayed for him there. So... His death caused probably or arguably more problems for Edward II than, than he had done during his, his own lifetime, actually. So let's fast forward a little bit now to his abdication. Yes. What was the scene around that? How did that begin? How did it and just how did the whole thing go down? It started really in September 1326 when Queen Isabella, Roger Mortimer, uh, the other English barons who were in exile on the continent, uh, including by this stage one of Edward II's own half-brothers, the Earl of Kent, they invaded England and landed in Suffolk. And basically Edward II's support just collapsed at that point. He kind of went towards Wales. Um, he was born in Wales, in fact, and was probably all more popular there than he had ever been in England, trying to raise support. But his reign had been so disastrous up to that point that he found very little support, in fact. And another problem was that he refused to send Hugh Dispenser away from him. Dispenser was absolutely loathed and feared having spent the last few years of his life as a royal favourite, basically committing extortion, false imprisonment, blackmail, and even piracy on a pretty grand scale. So he had alienated and stolen from an awful lot of people. And so because Edward refused to give up Dispenser, then very few people supported him in, in his hour of need. And another key issue was that his his and Isabella's son, uh, Edward of Windsor, who turned 14 in November 1326, was with the Queen. And very few Englishmen were willing to fight for their present king, uh, especially when his reign had been so disastrous, against their, their future king, his son. Hugh Dispenser was captured and was executed in November 1326. His father, the Earl of Winchester, was executed. Another ally of theirs, the Earl of Arundel, was also executed. Edward II was himself captured in South Wales and was uh, put into the custody of his cousin, Henry of Lancaster, the younger brother and heir of Thomas, of the executed Thomas of Lancaster. And then at that point, it seems like nobody really knew what to do, because in 1326, no one had ever brought down the King of England before. It later became reasonably common that kings were deposed or forced to abdicate. But in 1326-27, this was a really revolutionary thing that was happening. And nobody was quite sure how, how to do it, really. So it was decided that they would, in, in effect, speed up the succession, that Edward II would have to abdicate his throne to his 14-year-old son, Edward III. And a parliament was held in London in January 1327, basically forcing the, this issue through. Again, there are issues of the legality because Edward hadn't called that parliament and, and wasn't there. But anyway, a delegation was sent to him in captivity at Kenilworth Castle, telling him that his kingdom had renounced their allegiance to him and that his 14-year-old son was now king. And so for the first time ever in, in English history, King Edward III was crowned uh, as King of England in Westminster Abbey while the previous king was still alive. So if he was still alive, at some point, he did end up passing away. And there is so much speculation. I'm sure you were waiting for this question. I'm sure you're at the edge of your seat over here waiting to talk about his death. 
the stories of how he died are crazy, <laughs> sure, but they are taken as fact uh, by a lot of people. So the theory is that as a punishment for his sexual indiscretions, he was murdered after his abdication with a red hot poker. Mm. You know, I won't say it. Yeah. Up there. Okay. Now, I have heard that you can squash this theory and tell us what really happened. <laughs> okay. So Edward was, was forced to abdicate in January 1327 and a couple of months later was sent to captivity at Barclay Castle in Gloucestershire. Um, where, in fact, he, he was well-treated. He had servants, good food, wine. There's even evidence that he was allowed to go out riding. Again, um, one chronicler writing several decades later made up a lot of stories, which, unfortunately, the, the guides at Barclay Castle still tell visitors um, that he was very badly mistreated there, um, that they basically threw him into a cell and, and tried to asphyxiate him by by putting... Um, like dead animals nearby or, or some nonsense like this, like that. But that, that was also invented decades later and is absolutely not true. Um, on the 21st of September 1327, this is when Edward supposedly died. Uh, news was taken to his son, Edward III, in Lincoln. He received the news during the night of the 23rd to the 24th of September and Edward II's funeral was held in Gloucester, uh, on the 20th of December, 1327, three months after his supposed death. So nobody who was involved in Edward's death ever talked about it. Even years later, when Edward III said that, yes, my father was murdered, he never explained exactly how Edward II had been murdered. So chroniclers, who were mostly monks writing in abbeys or monasteries or royal clerks, they rushed to fill the gap with their own ideas or speculation or rumours that they had heard. So the chronicles closest in time to Edward's death tend to give like quite bland uh, explanations for, for Edward's sudden demise. So either that he died of natural causes or he died of some kind of mundane illness or he died of grief, having lost his throne, his kingdom, his children, his wife, his beloved Hugh Spencer, and so on. Uh, later on, the stories start to get a little bit more lurid. So they, people would, chroniclers would say that Edward was suffocated, perhaps, or strangled, or poisoned, or that he died of a fall. Uh, some chroniclers just say, we have no idea what happened to Edward II. He just died at Barclay Castle. We don't know why or how. And then a few years later, this very peculiar story emerged uh, in some time and place that was quite distant from Barclay Castle in Gloucestershire, that Edward had died from having a red hot poker inserted inside him. Um, so this at, at first was only a minority opinion among chroniclers. It was just one tale among all the other tales of poison and suffocation and grief and illness and blah, blah, blah. But as the 14th century progressed, chroniclers then started copying from each other. And some of them started repeating this story of the red hot poker more and more. And a couple of these chroniclers were, were very widely read in their own time and, 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 and still are, are today, in, in fact. So this story then kind of like took on a life of its own, I think basically because it's just so vile and disgusting and yet so luridly memorable. Um, that chroniclers and, and other people in, in the 14th century tended to repeat it like, oh, in a kind of like, oh, my God, can you believe that kind of a way? And then um, in the late 1500s, the playwright Christopher Marlowe also went a long way to popularising the story by including it in his play about Edward. Um, so that for, for centuries and, and even a lot of today, a lot of people have never heard any other story of Edward II's demise except for the red hot poker. Um, but the way that 14, some 14th century chroniclers describe it, it's ludicrous. It's like, you know, 15 men go into Edward's cell at Barclay Castle and smother him with pillows and then like turn him over on his stomach and then insert this poker inside him. And, and then you just think like, but you know, if they had all these pillows and 15 men, why didn't they just suffocate him? Why would they go to all the hassle of trying to, to 
torture him in the, by this horrible method, you know, and, and it was a way that they, they couldn't really have known would actually work or, or not. You know, I mean, it's not like anybody could really have had any experience with that kind of method of murder. And there's also a contradiction in that supposedly he was murdered in that way because it wouldn't leave any marks on the body. But then another story goes is that the villagers who live close to Barclay Castle heard him screaming. So, you know, why would you try to, to hide that you were killing someone by not leaving marks on the body and yet do it in such a horrible, horrifically painful way that he screams so loudly? I mean, that makes no sense at all. And also the the idea that uh, he was he was killed in that way is, is a punishment for having sexual acts with men. Um, so that's not something that appears in the 14th century. That's just a, a modern interpretation of it that seems to make sense. And, you know, it, it does make a kind of sense. But just because something makes sense doesn't actually mean that it was that it's true or that it actually happened. So that I am 99.999% certain that, no, the red hot m m poker murder did not happen. And assuming that Edwards was murdered in September 1327, it's far more likely that he was just smothered to death, or perhaps you know just, just given you know given a sedative in his food, where or you know went to sleep and and then just smothered with a pillow. That makes far more sense, I think, than some stupid, pointlessly sadistic method of killing him with a red hot poker. Yeah, don't believe everything you read, right? Oh, absolutely. And it just annoys me so much that even historians who are not, who are, you know, they are historians, but they're not specialists in the 14th century. They repeat it as well because, you know, they probably learned it at school or in their undergraduate days and they've never done any more reading on it, you know, ever since then. So then they keep perpetuating the story as well. And for years and years, I've been trying to demolish this and it just, it drives me up the wall. Sorry. <laughs> no, I love your passion. I'm so glad that you're able to give us some other theories because yeah. I have a feeling that, you know, anybody who's listening to this right now who has heard of Edward II, that's that's probably what they know about him. That's probably what they've heard. Really? I mean, right? Because right? that's. Yeah, I mean, I did two university degrees in medieval history and I, I had never heard anything else uh, except the red hot poker murder. So, you know, anytime, even years after university, when I heard Edward II, now I thought, all oh, right, red hot poker. It's just the one thing that everyone thinks they know about him. Do you think that there's a chance that he was never murdered at all? There was, there was actually a question that came in wondering if, if maybe he actually escaped and then lived life kind of incognito as a monk elsewhere. Do you think that there's a chance that he, that he did escape and that he wasn't even murdered at all? This is something that I realise is going to sound very, very strange and incredibly implausible to a lot of people, but there actually is a strangely large amount of evidence that, in fact, Edward didn't die in 1327, or at the very least that a lot of influential people alive at the time believed that he was still alive. One of them, in fact, was the Archbishop of York, uh, William Melton, who had been... Um, not, not so much a friend of Edward's, but, you know, a, a companion, an ally of his, who sent a letter to the mayor of London, his cousin, in January 1330, over two years after Edward's funeral, saying, our liege lord Edward of Carnarvon, that means Edward II, uh, is alive and in good physical health and in a safe place. And then Milton ordered lots of, uh, of goods for Edward, who he seemed to think was, was being, still being held in captivity somewhere. And Edward's half-brother, the Earl of Kent, who was Edward I's youngest son, also strongly believed that Edward was still alive in 1329-1330, to the point of actually trying to rescue him from captivity in Corfe Castle in Dorset. And in March 1330 was beheaded for treason uh, against his nephew, Edward III, for, you know, for trying to put Edward II back on the throne. So the, and there's, there's this uh, evidence as well. Um, there's, I found a lot of evidence that numerous men uh, supported the Earl of Kent in this endeavour, including important men like the Archbishop of York, the Bishop of London, the Mayor of London, several lords, actually quite a lot of lords, several sheriffs, for example. Numerous former members of Edward II's household were involved in this plot and genuinely seemed to, to believe that Edward II was still alive in 1330. Many of them fled abroad afterwards. The ones who didn't manage to flee abroad were imprisoned, their lands and goods were confiscated until a few years later. Uh, sorry, a few months later, when Edward III overthrew his mother, Isabella, 
who was you know mostly ruling England during his minority and started to rule his kingdom in his own right. He invited all these men back to England or or freed the ones who were still in prison. Um, Rumours were, were current in, in 1329, 1330 that Edward was alive. Um, he had a friend in Scotland, the Earl of Mar, who was Robert Bruce's nephew but had grown up in England, who offered to bring an army to England to help uh, release Edward from, from captivity. So, yes, there, there is evidence that a lot of men and women in England, Scotland and Wales firmly believed that Edward II was, was still alive uh, years after his supposed death. And this whole thing about the, the monk uh, relates to another letter, which is called the Fieschi letter, which was discovered in an archive in Montpellier in France in the late 1800s and was written by a man called Manuele di Fieschi, who later became bishop of a town called Vecelli, uh, which is in the north of, of Italy near Milan, and came from a, a noble Italian family by birth. And in the letter, he explained to Edward III in great detail exactly how Edward II had escaped from Barclay Castle, how he had made his way to Ireland first and stayed there for some time. Then he went over to France. He went to visit the Pope in Avignon. Uh, then he made his way over the Alps uh, and down to, to Milan and ended up living at a hermitage which uh, Fieschi didn't name in the letter, but which can be identified as the hermitage of Sant'Alberto di Butria, which is about 60 miles south of Milan. So I, I have friends in Italy. I, I've been there myself several times. We've, you know, we're, we're trying to, to find if there's any way that we can confirm anything at all about this story whatsoever. Uh, so far, we haven't been able to, unfortunately. But you know, you, you do kind of have to wonder why an Italian bishop, who was also uh, a lawyer of the Pope by profession, would tell the King of England in great detail how his father had escaped from captivity, had cheated death, and then had made his way to a, hermit, a hermitage in, in Italy. I mean, the, the whole thing is so bizarre, it's difficult really to, to get your head around it. Well, speaking of uh, bizarre storytelling... We had a question from a listener, which I think is actually very interesting because we know that a lot of um, different monarchs were portrayed in different lights, especially as the years went on and people's ideas have, have been shaped really by things that didn't necessarily even happen because of, you know, stories and such as we're discussing the Red Hot Poker story and things like that. So which monarch would you say was most slandered by playwrights or storytellers, things like that later on? So would you pick Edward II by Christopher Marlowe, Richard III by Shakespeare, or even Isabella, his queen, mm. because she had been portrayed as the she-wolf mm. of France for many years, um, you know, 400 plus years later, I think Thomas Gray wrote about her. So who do you think was the most slandered and, and is in the most uh, unlike, or sorry, untruthful mm -hmm. position? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think if we limit that question to, to playwrights, I, I would probably argue that of those three, it would have to be Richard III by, by Shakespeare. Um, I don't. Uh, I don't think really that Christopher Marlowe particularly slandered Edward in his play about him. I do have some issues with the play, mostly with with the way that Marlowe depicted the red hot poker story and then helped to perpetuate it like forever. But I don't think that he's particularly unkind or, or ungenerous to to Edward in the play. It's a certain image of Edward, but I don't think it's a particularly false one. Uh, as you say, yeah, Thomas Gray, the, the poet, wrote a poem about Isabella actually in 1757, which was 399 years after her death, calling her the she-wolf. Some people seem to be under the impression that it was Edward II who called his wife that. It wasn't. It was only given to her hundreds and hundreds of years later. And I think it's reasonable to say that Isabella has also been very hard done by um, by a number of, of writers in the centuries after her death, especially the Victorians, who really treated her as this very evil, murderous, you know, femme fatale. And, you know, it was it was very unfair the way they, they treated her, I think. 
Um, so I don't think Edward II was, was slandered by dramatists so much as by more modern writers, also by the Victorians and in, into the 20th and the 21st century. You know, so like it was Agnes Strickland, for example, in her book about the Queens of England, who invented this story that he gave Isabella's jewels or wedding gifts to Piers Gaveston, which is absolute nonsense. And then other writers have added to the, the mythology around Edward II over the years and decades by creating yet more rubbish about him. Um, so of the three, because I'm very, very partial to Edward II and don't know nearly as much about Richard III, I, I would have to say that Edward II has, has been the most slandered. Um, because I think now a lot of people, or most people, or at least I hope most people, would realise that Shakespeare's take on Richard III is wildly inaccurate. But I think a, a lot of people don't realise that these stories told about Edward II are just much, much later inventions and are actually not true. Um, so I think, you know, I, I still have a long way to go to, to uh, counter the, these calumnies against my, my poor Edward <laughs> That's how I feel about Richard III, so I'm kind of glad you said what you said. <laughs> so to wrap up our, our talk today, do you think that we can leave our listeners with any sort of positive um, feelings on him as a king? Do you think that there are any stories to that can kind of redeem him and uh, give us just one quick positive anything <laughs> for, for Edward II today? Okay, I suppose what I talked about a little earlier was, you know, Edward's extreme kindness and generosity to his common subjects is something that I think that we in the 21st century can look on quite favorably and think, okay, yeah, you know, that's a nice thing to do. You know, you go along and chat to a fisherman for a while, have a drink with him, and then, you know, give him the equivalent of a year's wages because you enjoyed his company. So, you know, so, you know, that's, that's pretty nice. Um, Edward was also contrary to the, um, the popular image of him as shown in Braveheart, was actually an enormous, physically powerful man. Uh, all the English chroniclers who described him commented on his enormous strength. One chronicler said that, you know, he was one of the strongest men in England and a Scottish poet who had absolutely no reason whatsoever to praise Edward II said that he was the strongest man that you would find in any country. Um, one of the reasons for his enormous strength was that he often went out into the fields and worked and did hard physical labour, like, you know, digging ditches and, and, and so on. He did a lot of swimming. And this was centuries before anybody went swimming. You know, I mean, he was like centuries ahead of anyone and discovering the joys of swimming for pleasure. So I think perhaps as a role model for, for people in the 21st century of, you know, just getting out there in the fresh air and doing really good physical exercise, he's actually a, a pretty decent role model. So, so there's that. Otherwise, I'm genuinely racking my brains to think of anything that, that could be deemed as positive from his reign. And one of the very few things that, that occurs to me is the fact that in 1317, he founded a college at the University of Cambridge. And in 1326, he founded a college at the University of Oxford. And he's, in fact, one of only two people in history who have founded colleges at both Oxford and Cambridge. The only other one is, was his descendant, Henry VI. Edward's foundation at Oxford in 1326 was Oriel College, which still exists. His foundation at Cambridge in 1317 was called the King's Hall, which was later incorporated into Trinity College when Trinity was founded by Henry VIII, uh, another of Edward's descendants in, in 1546. Um, but I think perhaps, you know, we could we could credit Ed, Edward with kind of semi-co-founding Trinity College with Henry VIII, perhaps. I mean, no, that's a rather nice way of looking at it. Um, but yes, that, that's about all I can say about him, really, was that, you know, he was he was a, a great friend to the common people of, of his kingdom. He was a great role model for doing physical exercise. And he was deeply interested in learning and described the, the two universities of Oxford and Cambridge as the twin jewels in his crown, was, was how he put it. And that's it. Yes, that's that's all I can say that's really positive about Edward the well, I love that. That's perfect. That's absolutely good enough. I mean, there's, uh, I'm glad that you're able to say anything because I think that there are a lot of uh, misunderstandings about him. So I'm glad we have some, some positive information anyway. So before you head out, Catherine, I would love to share with our audience, if you've got anything that you'd like 
to plug while you're here. Is there any books or upcoming or is there any talks or anything that you're going to give that you'd love people to pay attention to or see? Yes, thank you, Steph. Um, so I've written a biography of Edward, uh, which came out in 2014, called Edward II, the Unconventional King. So if you know if you've gained an interest from Edward uh, from listening to this, perhaps you you know you'd like to get hold of that. If you're particularly interested in his potential survival after 1327, or perhaps his murder in 1327. I've written a book about that too. It's called Long Live the King, The Mysterious Fate of Edward II. I've also written a biography of Edward's queen called Isabella of France, the Rebel Queen. I've written a biography of his last great favourite, Hugh Dispenser. Um, I've written a biography of his uh, nieces, one of whom was uh, Hugh Dispenser's wife. They were called the, the Declare Sisters. And my most recent book that came out just several weeks ago is a biography of, of Edward's grandson, uh, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster. So that's my, my most recent one. But I think I'm up to about 13 or 14 books now. So yeah, <laughs> there's, there's quite a lot for you there if, if you want to have a look. And that's perfect. You really are the Edward II go-to expert. Yeah. So I... can we pick those all up in, in uh, the US as well? Oh, yes, certainly. Yes. So all, all my books are available in the US, you know, either on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or, you know, whatever other bookshop you, you like to shop from. Yeah. Thank you so much. And last but not least, as always, we want to say thank you to all our listeners and a big thanks to everyone who had written in with questions. So thanks a lot. Julie Rowan, Katie Ray, Dee Withers, C. Woodhurst, Carrie Ferguson, Douglas Breeden, Maria Gidavaku. Emily Page, Samantha Dillon, and Nick Sweet. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Catherine. Yeah, thanks very much, Steph, and thanks very much to all, all you listeners. I really hope you enjoyed hearing about Edward II. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty. 